No Jumper, coolest podcast in the world. This is a legendary moment. We in here with the one and only X-Rated. How you hey, feeling, my man? I feel phenomenal. Fantastic, even. You look great. He came in dripping just for the people out there. They can't see the belt. They can't see the, the full fit, but my man came in looking fresh as hell. Yeah, this is how I feel. I'm making up for lost time. We got we to gotta add to the drip. You know what I mean? The mm. water was consumed. It was concealed. <laughs> now we got to let it drip. How uh, many months you been out on the street now? I've been on the street. Let me see. 16 months, I think, 16 14 months. months. Wow. And yeah, so how's it feel? Like ah, it's surreal. Still surreal. It's surreal. I had these moments. Like, I've been blessed, you know what I mean? And my people, my family made solid decisions. So I drive home and I got to pass a waterfall. You know what I mean? I got to pass. It's just a trip. Really? And so I'm like, I feel like I belong, but I don't belong. I feel like I'm supposed to be everywhere and I'm not supposed to be anywhere almost all the time. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, because it's, I mean, the world is so beautiful and so expansive and there's so many things, but you were shielded away from all that for so long that it almost doesn't even feel right for you to really just be experiencing that. Yeah, to, I almost always feel like, unless it's a heightened, super, you know, amazing experience like this, then I feel it feels appropriate because it's like, this is stuff that I dreamed about. This is what my focus was on, but... Like when I'm making toast, right? I'm like <laughs> making toast because that's it's amazing. The it's like, small things, yeah. Because you couldn't just make some toast for yourself for all those years, right? Yeah, I couldn't even turn a doorknob. You know what I mean? Like doorknobs are a trip. God damn! Opening a window is a trip. Like I could just walk over there and open a window. Wow, couldn't do that. 26 years. But have you started to get used to it at all over the course of the 14 months or so? Uh, you know, just like, because eventually that stuff has to start to feel normal and you have to start to lose that enthusiasm for these things that you missed for all that time, right? Yeah, it starts getting, every now and then I'll, I'll be chilling, but then I'll realize I'm chilling and I'll fuck it up because I'll be like, I'm chilling right now. And now that I'm, I'm thinking about it, I mess it up. Mm. It's like having one of them awake dreams. Yeah, yeah. Like when you, the dream is phenomenal and then something will happen in your mind and you'll be like, I'm dreaming right now. Right. Ruin the dream. Wow. And so I'll be chilling, super chilling, and I'll realize it like, wow, this is crazy. I'm chilling right now. Boom. I think I, beca I became aware of you about 2008. I give a, give a shout out to my friend Shitty, a.k.a. Max Shit from uh, Oregon. and he... Salute to Max Shit. <laughs> you know what it is. That's real, man. Yeah. But he was always playing his shit around me. And at some point, you know, I'm just like, what the fuck is this? Like, why are you rapping over the phone? And he explained the whole situation to me and sort of like let me in on what was basically like this cultural phenomenon that had bubbled up more so as you were locked up where people just got really, really entranced by the stuff that you were recording mm -hmm. in there. Yeah, I think there was a truth to it that was missing from hip hop in a certain kind of way. Right. Because even even the most realistic rappers, there's a fantastical aspect to what they're rapping about. Mm -hmm. And that was true for me too before I got locked up. And even while I was writing during my incarceration, I, there was a point where I was still writing fantasy raps. Mm. And then when my trial got ready to start, I wrote my first real song called Deuce Father Life that was about my real life. Right. And that's, that made it real clear for me that I had been rapping about just bullshit, even though some of it was, you know, the gang banging part is real. That uh -huh. was the truth. But it was other aspects of it that was fantastical. But once I started going to trial, it got real. And I think between court, there was so much downtime. 
that I could try to, you know how the human brain works. I could try to distance myself from the negativity of that experience, from the weight of it right. and the, the trauma and the pain of it by just acting like it wasn't even happening. I don't go to court for eight months. I go, I'm there 15 minutes. I'm back in the building. I don't go back for eight months. But when it was time for trial, every day, wake up, five in the morning, you got to go. Go to the, put the chains on, go to the tank, take the elevator, everything, go to court, sit in court six, seven hours a day for months. And it was real. And that bled into my music. And I never really went back. And I think people felt that, that, there, there was an authenticity to it, and it resonated with the people. It's crazy because it just it stands out to me as such a stark contrast that when we talk about you, we're talking about you basically right now at this age, and we're talking about you as a 17-year-old who really didn't know a lot more than the streets at that point, right? Yeah. And that like you've changed so much throughout that those decades, and that it's like we, we could talk to you now about the, the person that you were then, but that almost has to feel like such a distant memory, right? Nah. It doesn't. Nah, it was like yesterday. Really? Yeah. It's, it, when I came, while I was doing it, I, I can't even say it felt like forever. You know, for me, t I had this understanding of time from doing all that time where it was, it's always right now. Mm. And when I woke up in the morning, it was right now, right now, I got to wash up right now I got to work out right now I got to it was always right now and then I came home and it was like all of that it's like a movie for me you can enjoy a movie about somebody's life in an hour and a half two right. hours you know what I mean 26 years feels like a week it feels like a solid movie just like I can just close my eyes and watch it like like a movie real quick a couple hours and get a bar the whole thing right yeah, it's all there still. When you think about that 17-year-old version of yourself, though, it's like, had you really, you hadn't been shown a different way of life? Like, were you just completely consumed with the, the gang, the street life? Had you even been exposed to a different path? I think that for me, I had, I was immersed in gang culture. Right. And then I started playing football. And when I started playing ball, like my family sent me out of state to to try to keep me out of trouble. Right. And then my maternal grandmother died. That really devastated my family. Mm. So like a lot of people went their own ways. She was kind of the glue that held the family together. So while they while the adults was mourning, I went to the streets with my older cousins and just started hanging out in the neighborhood. And so that altered the chemicals for me, my molecules on what my perspective of life was, because it, it just was garden block became everything. It, it was everything to me. So when they sent me out of state, I went to live with my cousins in the projects in Waco, Texas, out in uh, Trenwood Housing Projects, one of the biggest projects out there. Years before Waco, Texas would become legendary for the fucking David Koresh situation. Yeah, years before. That's crazy. And so I got out there, and then I started football as life out there. So I started playing ball, and I was going well. And that was the first time I really got exposed to something different. I did well enough. One of my cousins was playing at a at a private school at Waco Christian High School. So football was kind of becoming something that you could see yourself immersing yourself in that was more positive? Definitely. I would walk from the public school to the private school so I could watch my cousin practice and then go home with him. Wow. And uh, their coaches, I started participating in their practices. And the coaches actually arranged for a scholarship for me. So I got on the team and I started doing better and being around those teachers, those students, it was just completely different from everything that I knew about. And so I was I was hopeful, 
But I lost my scholarship because even with reduced payments, my mom couldn't afford to keep up with the payments. Mm. And so when that happened, my brain broke. My wow. brain broke. I was like, fuck everything. Because when we got back to Sacramento, my school records were so messed up that I couldn't even go to Burbank or Florin High in South Sac. You know, I had to go to a continuation school with no football. And so I just was like, fuck all this shit, this, this crib. And I went to the streets Did it just with the It stood out to you like this is so unfair and fucked up that I have this talent and that because my mom doesn't have enough money that I'm not able to pursue this? I, I don't know that I processed that like that when I was 15. But what I did feel was I felt a certain degree of resentment, very powerful, like, you know, it's moved me around, mm. can't never stay still. Every time I invest in something, it get took from me. So, like, that maybe that's why my right now started. It was like, right, fuck it. I'm going to the set right now on right. the streets. First chance I got, I was gone, and that was it. And I didn't stop running the streets until the day they put the cuffs on me. Right. Damn, so so let me ask you this. What was your street rap like before you went in and did this time? Like, to what extent did you already have your respect in the neighborhood or in the streets of where you're from? That was, I mean, it wasn't nothing to talk about when it came to that. My my family members, Big J Dog from 24th Street, Big Slim Dog, who put me on the set. You know, the people I'm related to, G-Man from 29th Street, Garden Block, and my family was respected, so it was just mm. automatic. And so I had a reputation for, you know, being a little wild, running around. I, I say it's like a baby vampire. You know, in, in vampire lore, they say you don't never turn a child into a vampire because they don't got the discipline not to drink all the blood. They'll kill the whole village. I never yeah. heard that metaphor, but wow, that's actually a really great metaphor. Yeah, I was a baby. <laughs> I was a baby vampire. So wow. once I once I got on, you know, I was a I was a jump out boy. I thought it was all good in the middle of the street, hop out, clap at something. But I loved it the way people responded to that, or the way people felt when I came around running around with my rag hanging. I used to put a safety pin on my pocket high so my rag could hang down there to my foot, just mobbing around like that. Like that was normal. That was the way people saw me unless I went to one of my aunt's house. That was the only reason I wouldn't look like that. But other than that, that was my that was my 16-hour, 20-hour-a-day experience and presentation, and it was utterly insane. Yeah, like when you think back about that now, though, do you feel like you were a victim in a sense that you were sort of taught that this was the the way that you should be living your life, or do you feel like that was just you being you that you would have had to embrace that and figure out that one way or another? That's a loaded question because you know we we would have to examine the United States of America. You know, I went victim is a very strong word. Mm. I think I'm a I am a citizen of a country. And I fit a certain demographic in this country at that age, at that time, that was under an unequivocal attack mm. by the United States of America. And I, I'm talking COINTELPRO. I'm talking all the way back. And these are forces that you just, I couldn't be aware of. Mm. Who put dope in what neighborhoods? Who put the guns there? Why are these liquor stores in our neighborhoods but not welcoming when it comes to zoning and understanding? They won't let them put that stuff in their neighborhood, right. but they'll let them put it in ours. The understanding that this maze had been created for us, and you get an aerial view of a neighborhood, and you can see they parked this here, parked this there. In the L.A. riots, what was it? It was a trap. It wasn't I, no getting out. You burn yours up, but you ain't burning this up. That's what they did, and that just showed it. The reality that that exists. Right. 
cut this off, cut that off, and you trapped. So I think that child that I was was trapped with limited decisions for sure. Right. I responded inappropriately with my own free will to that stimuli, but yet and still, you know, the choices that were presented to me were were presented deliberately by this country, and they continue to do it to this day. No, because that's a real-ass answer, because it's like you could look at it from a narrower perspective, and, you know, certain people end up walking away from jail time or experiences with gangs and shit and saying, I was victimized by the adults who are in this gang, but it takes an even bigger perspective to say, like, the entire neighborhood, the entire area was basically victimized by being forced into these fucking neighborhoods with bad schools and limited opportunities, and then what, you just expect everybody to figure it out? Right. You know? Yeah, we can we can look at the gentrification. We can look at how starting from the civil rights movement, where the church and the family structure was the source of the political consciousness that existed in black families at the time. Mm. That's the truth. And it's documented that the government determined this is documented. I'm not making that up. It was the government determined that one of the greatest threats to the United States of America, mm-hmm. as they saw it, was the existence of a strong black family. They felt that that was why the civil rights movement was so successful. So they start breaking that down. And like we, you know, I studied this and spoke with some of the men in, in the prisons about, they took vocations out of schools. It used to be you could go to school and learn how to do, you know, machine work, mm-hmm. you could learn woodwork, you could learn well, ACs. Even, yeah. yeah, vocations, they don't do that no more mm-hmm. because it, you had people who were leaving with a certain kind of education. They would take that education, go to factory work, and that was how they supported their families. And those families that were supported were the ones the voices came from mm. that stood up and said, hey, we want these rights, A, B, C, and D, during the Civil Rights Movement. They attacked that in the 70s unequivocally. Cartel mm-hmm. Pro, it's a fact. J. Edgar Hoover, Nixon, all those policies that got put into place specifically to create a circumstance that led up to eventually the war on drugs mm-hmm. in the 80s and Reaganomics and then, you know, the war on crime. They had all these names that essentially meant a war on people who look like me. Mm. That's what it was. That's straight real. up. So so you get locked up and then do you do you kind of have to did you it's at first did you try to just sort of embrace the reputation that you now have for yourself? Like, when did you start to begin to realize that the way that you had gotten into the situation was so unfortunate and that you wanted to change or whatever? Because for a period of time, in particular with the early records that you were dropping, it felt like you basically were just like, well, this is what people want to hear from me, so I'm going to do this. I think that originally those records I was dropping, I did that, I I wrote that way because the homies liked it. Mm. I liked it. You know, writing about what we were experiencing. I had extreme elements to it, but, you know, it ultimately came down to we in the projects got the trunk open, bumping, drinking, and freestyling to Parliament Mm. or the Zap or whatever. And, you know, we rhymed about women, weed, you know, the streets, gangs, the set. And so that permeated my music until I started going to trial. And that was when it, it really woke me up. You right. know, that writing Deuce Father Life, after that, my my what I wrote changed. Every now and then some, you know, rap would come out of me. Uh-huh. But for the most part, when I sat down to write, it was deadly game. You know, it was it was misanthropy, land of the lost, mama's pride and joy. I started writing 
you know, what they I had a fan tell me I was the first game banger, conscious game banger. And it was true. That happened. During my time in prison, I was blessed, blessed to be placed where they put the fathers who fell in that trap. They put mm-hmm. the uncles, they put the big brothers. That's where they were. And so I was educated by those men. But seeing dudes cribs. who were 20 years older than you who were in the situation that you were probably going to end up in? That and those who had already woke up during their time, right. who, who had already came to understand that it wasn't just about, you know, the genocidal aspects of gang banging. That, that became a topic of discussion. And prison is a very segregated location, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. There's a lot of activities in there that's predicated on what your, not just your affiliation, but your race. Right. And so that made me hyper-conscious of, you know, the fact that you could, you could harm a black if he a blood, but, you know, don't I mean, let that dude do it, though. But a lot of people, like, they go to jail. Like, I was talking to somebody yesterday who was telling me that they went to jail when they were really young, and that made them realize how silly a lot of gangbang and shit was because they, they get locked up, and they realize that all these dudes want to kill each other on the streets. It ain't really like that once you're locked up. Yeah. And if the rules can be so completely different just because you're locked inside a building, then what the fuck are the rules? Right. You know? Yeah, because you learn a certain set of rules on the streets only to go to prison right. and be told. Like, I got off a bus at New Folsom in 1996, 165 uh, man riot, 60-something knives, three men shot. And one of the first things that I was told by uh, Turtle's brother, Whiskey, from Santana Block, and it's a legendary keyway on a street level. There, that word, legendary people... You know, it's a subject right now, but this is a person legendary on the streets and in prisons for representing what he represented and what mm. he stood for. And I, I was blessed for that to be my cellmate. And one of the things he told me was, you have to help Bloods, Pyrules, you have to help the Bay Area, Kumis, Jama. You got to help them mm. or it's going to be bad. Right. So... Right on the streets, and nobody's saying that. Mm. Like the idea that you should be insane. unified beyond your gang or whatever is sort of a foreign principle on the street. It was completely foreign principle on the street, and get to prison and be told basically that if you're under the threat of violence yourself, if you fail to come to the aid of somebody that's from a rival gang, even if it's the rival gang, you're in prison for going that to war against on the streets. Yeah. Even if it's your worst enemy, you got to help him in this specific circumstance. And that led to the, man, well, why? But like, how come nobody told me that? Right. Before I got to this situation with the psychology that anybody that wasn't from what I represented or wasn't one of us was one of them. Right. Why couldn't I have been informed about that? But the reason is the people who could have told us was trapped in them boxes. Right. That's where they were. Damn, that's true. Um, so then you start to, it sounds like you had kind of like a blessed prison experience because you were maybe uh, exposed to like a more intelligent perspective on your life early, whereas like a lot of people end up going to jail and they just sort of get wrapped up in even more bullshit. Right. I think what happened to me, what made it different for me in prison than a lot of other people was I was already X-rated the rapper. Mm. By the time I stepped off a bus, I've been in Playboy magazine. Right. I've been in The Source. I've been in, you know, all these different publications. You know what I mean? So I was uh, 
I was a prize for mm. better and for worse. And so people, some people were very proud of me and viewed it as, you know, that's ours. We mm. did that. That's an accomplishment that we had, especially that I recorded the music, some of my music in the county jail right. before I got to the pen. So it was a lot of people who felt like they wanted to tell me something because they heard something, they felt something. One of those people saying, you could Shakur, Monster Cody, when his book came out, he uh, he actually was started looking for me, and he reached out to me. I got a letter from him. I think back then he used to write for rap pages. Right. And uh, he reached out to me and told me that when as many people were listening to someone as I had listening to me, that you had a responsibility to say something worthy of being heard. Wow. I remember it verbatim. That's what he said to me. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I wrote him back. We We started communicating. It's one of the reasons I got validated getting letters from him. But meaning that, that the prison determined that I was a dangerous person or influential person. Because was, you were talking to him. Because I was getting letters from him. He was validated already. Um, and so they viewed it as, okay, he's, what's cold is in these letters. You know, I get the letter three months later, you know, stamped <laughs> all up because it then went through five different investigators before they finally gave it to me. I can think of such better uses for their budget. Yeah, literally. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, bro. don't you dare mentor that young man. What the fuck? Right, but that's what he did, and and it woke my game up when he told me that. Uh, Wendy Day started reaching out to me about the music business, making sure that I was taking care of my my you know artistic rights. Mm that I had my copyrights, my publishing rights. She started writing, and one of her demands of me was, in order for her to write me back, I had to do homework. She sent me a packet of information from the Rap Coalition, and I had to actually answer all of that to her satisfaction to get a reply to my actual letter. Really? Yeah, she did me like that for about five months. Well, she was just trying to, what, sort of vet that you were serious? Nah. She knew that. I think she knew that after the first letter. I think she was, I think she was trying to educate me. Uh, Period. She knew general. I was listening. She wouldn't have kept doing it if I wasn't getting it. Right. So I think that there, I've noticed that through my journey, even with doctors, people with education want to teach it to somebody. Mm-hmm. And their greatest joy is teaching it to somebody who's learning it. Right. You get no happier educator than a person involved with someone who is absorbing what they're trying to teach them. Right. Because they spend all their lives learning that stuff. And so she sent me the first letter and I wrote her back. And her response was a pack of information and a post-it note. Answer these questions. I'll answer your letter. I answered the questions. She replied to my letter. And then I answered her letter. And she did same thing. Did you not really know the true value of education until you got locked up? And is that something you really discovered in there? I discovered the true value of education during my stint in prison. Yeah. I had no education for me was what's the best grade I got to get to be able to play football Friday. Right. Right. That was the extent of how educated I felt I needed to be. And then, you know, I had a mom who was big on books and information and learning. And uh, she got a autobiographical photographic memory. And mm. so that's a woman who was absorbing a lot of information. It was a lot laying around the house, encyclopedias, but it was we were self-taught. I really wasn't getting it in school. I skipped a couple grades, but my my whole trip was just about football. I didn't really care. Football, hip hop, girls. I just feel like once like I, I was 
watching this documentary about this the other day actually it's on pbs right now about these all these prisoners who are on death row and like this real intentional attempt to uh start like an educate not death row i don't think but to start an educational program to like help them get college degrees and shit while they're in jail and how these programs have been destroyed by the government over and over and i wanted to get your perspective on that question of like how much does educating a prisoner who's sitting there facing decades in jail how much does that change their perspective because the the conclusion that this documentary came to is basically that it's like light and day like once you start educating a prisoner it gives them a reason to live a lot of these guys form such tight bonds with each other based on having that camaraderie of learning together is that the kind of experience you had in there as well it is especially toward the end i ended up being one of the people pushing for those programs to get uh, implemented in the prison system. I had a, have a relationship with the San Diego State University professor, Alan Mobley. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, they got a program that we were trying to get where people could get a bachelor's. Because even once they started allowing you to educate yourself with a accredited university or, uh, you know, a city college, they only offered an AA. Mm-hmm. And so you could get your credits were real, but you had to get out to finish your, you know, the rest of your education and get your BA. So we started working toward, hey, man, let's let these people earn their degrees completely and affiliated with different universities and like Coastline Community College, uh, Southwestern Community College uh, and the University of San Diego. And so that worked. And I think uh, the University of San Francisco was the first one to start the program. And from there, you know, we started trying to spread it out throughout the prison system. But it's been, you know, 32, 33 prisons in the state of California, San uh, San Quentin and Donovan were right. the two that kind of started that. And then Ironwood, really popping down at Ironwood. That's where the TED Talks happen the most at. They actually do TED Talks in the prison. They do? They do. Holy they have shit. a phenomenal rate. They're teaching coding, all kind of stuff. So we, it, it was a lot, but there was a decision to be made, be a part of the problem or be a part of the solution, even in that environment, to to actually get involved and use my voice. There came a point where the ignorance, the gang banging, going to the hall, being slammed all the time in the show, to understanding that I had so much influence. But you know, one of the Menendez brothers taught me that. He said, you showing up at a prison and allowing the population to define you to the administration. Because I was a gangbanger. I wasn't no rapper. Right. I came to prison gangbanging and was like, oh, the rapper's here. And, it, and I felt like it's Crip. You fuck rap. <laughs> that was how I really felt. Right. It's Crip. I didn't give a fuck about no rapper. Don't come ask me for no autograph. Get the, I was tripping. Really? Because it, it, was, it wasn't about no rapping for me. It's Crip. It's my real life. Don't walk up on me. I don't know who you are. What's happening? What do you want? But in terms of your self-preservation, was that the best attitude for you to take? Was Hell just nah. You don't think that that was necessary? That was just sort of you being young and hot-headed? Yeah, I was tripping. And and I learned that, you know, my first, I spent my first five, six years like that because I was just angry. Mm. And then I, I was unsocialized, like their true definition of antisocial. I was really an antisocial personality. And so I uh, I had to learn that. This person is attempting to, you know, make a human connection and give them that. And it, it comes with a lot. They get their fans, too. Uh-huh. This dude might have been in prison for a year and bumped my music for 15 years. Right. And met me and I told him, get the fuck out my face. <laughs> you know, that's an inappropriate response. Yeah. I had to learn. And once, you know, the human brain 
development, age of 25, all that stuff is real. So I had to go from the age of 17 to 25 in prison Mis with brain development, yeah. miseducation, rejecting the attempts to educate me incorrectly in my own environment and, and the willingness to, to have to fight over that too. You know what I mean? Like everybody's not willing to accept, you know, you rising from this grind. Right. You're not supposed to exist. Not everybody wants to see you be positive because I mean, you know that from the music, like a lot of people want to hear some, some grimy ass shit from you. Right. Even when you want to give them something positive. Yeah. And not even positive, just decent, just just basic human decency. Mm. I'm gonna give you basic human decency. That's unacceptable. Right. That's unacceptable. So you know, it's it's a strange thing, but I had to I had to learn how to grow past that, surpass that, and then embrace my my ideation, who I believed I was as a man, as a human being. Who do I want to be? I started reading Nelson Mandela, his writings while he was incarcerated. I related to some of it. Some of it was beyond my capacity i had to catch up like mm. there was no doubt it you got to grow but so you're locked up and you're you're educating yourself and you're you know expanding your mind and and gaining a better perspective on the actions that led you to be in the situation etc but then meanwhile out on the streets you're putting out these mixtapes and people are really in a lot of ways so intrigued by the violence that was attached to your name that that's a huge part of of you becoming like this mythical person to them yeah. Was that weird to, to sort of balance? And did that in a way make you not want to become a more positive person because you're being celebrated for some of the worst shit that you were probably ever associated with, you know? I don't think so. I think that I had I had up for a certain period of time been celebrated for a certain degree of ignorance. Mm. But I think that by the time I dropped Unforgiven, you know, May 11th, 1999, mm. I dropped Unforgiven Volume 1. And uh, San Yuka was writing me. I was, it was 1997 when we dropped Deadly Game about the three strikes law. Right. I think there came a point where people perceived me as that Scarface, Tupac, Ice Cube. I, I chose to go in a different direction mm -hmm. as an MC because hip hop is one of the main factors for my growth. I wanted to be the dopest rapper alive. Mm. I like really wanted that. I wanted. I wanted to be the the baddest rapping motherfucker, period. Mm -hmm. And when I started studying who I believed to be the baddest mother rapping motherfuckers, period, they had bars, they had stories, they had content, meaning they were vulnerable, introspect, retrospect. Mm -hmm. And so I was motivated to put that in my rhymes by a sense of competitiveness and a desire to be considered elite as an MC. Mm -hmm. So by the time, you know, I wrote misanthropy. 1996 in a cell and it came out in 1999 while I was still in a cell and the first thing I say is I'm gonna give it to you old school style no album cover gimmicks no intros no shout outs nothing but stray lyrics so if you in your car you could buckle up and if you don't like what I'm saying when you see me knuckle up no studio gangster stories of tall tales full of fiction I'm spitting the life of a nigga that's full of indecision don't know which way to go. I'm at the crossroads. It's time to elevate the game and quit spitting the same old saying because your boy done grew up. Mm. That's the first song. That's the first eight bars on my album that was never supposed to happen. Right. That's what I got celebrated for. Yeah, because I, I mean... It's, but that's what's interesting is that people sort of have this like entry point of you becoming sort of legendary 
for certain street shit, but then you were taking the content and attempting to really elevate it. But it's got to be difficult when you're recording over phones, you're in prison. Rappers have a hard enough time like keeping a long career developing as artists when they're out on the streets and they're in the best studios in the world. You're over here trying to show some kind of artistic development and you're you're so limited. But were you amazed once you really started to sell mixtapes or albums from prison? Like, cause that's kind of unprecedented to be recording. And, yeah. and I mean, we, we act like it's kind of normal for some reason, but that shit is like unheard of. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wasn't amazed cause I didn't give a fuck. Mm. Like I, I recorded because I wanted to be heard. I wanted to be heard. And like, I wanted, I wanted it to be known that I grew up. So like my efforts to make Unforgiven really was motivated by I've been projected as this animal, right? And, and to my own, I had caused that. My mm. reputation of being a fighter, a shooter, all this stuff was my own doing within the construct of my free, limited free will in the system in the United States of America. However, I made my decisions, but I was being defined by the, the, the choices a 17-year-old child made. Mm. I was 25, 24 years old. And I wanted to say something else. And so when I did that, I thought, it, you know, it was brave from people who were waiting for me to rap about, you know, shoot this, shoot that, kill everybody, this crib, fuck everybody, to come with a politically, you know, social conscious music, you know, album. I think that was a, it was a surprise. And that's how I got a windy day in my life for David D and Sanyika mm. Shakur. These people didn't come looking for me when I was writing Everybody Killer. Mm. They weren't looking for me when I wrote With a Mask On. They was looking for me when I wrote Misanthropy, when I wrote Deadly Game. They was looking for me when I wrote Land of the Lost because I spoke to, you know, what their experiences were. Mm, I came in, one of yeah. your guys, I don't know how old he is, he's probably like maybe 22, 23. And he told me, he loved my music, and one of the songs that that he was just listening to was called Grandparents. Mm -hmm. I wrote that song in like 2002, recorded it in a cell on a on a digital recorder. He was barely born. He was barely born. He ain't, he ain't say everybody kill it. Mm. The song called Grandparents, right? And it, it's a meaningful song. It's a true statement of how I feel about my grandparents, mm. how I felt. People related to that. So I think that's where the Tupac comparison started happening at. That, that is kind of crazy that you were able to spit such real shit that the recording quality and stuff just didn't matter. And that it's yeah. been able to continue to matter decades later. Right. That's unheard of. It is unheard of. When I first started... Uh, recording over the phone. I think the Lifers group out of New Jersey had done it first. You know, I'm all about that okay. hip hop history. Right. The Lifers group had made, they got recording equipment. There was a program, I think in Rahway in New Jersey, and they put out an album, and I was conscious of that. And then Mac Dre did Back in the Hood over right, the okay. phone in the county jail, and I was conscious of that. And Brother Lynchung had me rap on the answering machine, and then he took that and put it on 24 Deep, and when he dropped his, his first EP, I'm on, the, I'm on the title track, and I'm on the chorus and over the phone. Right. So I end up in a tank with Mac Dre. I walk in, you know, 
Court tanks are a trip. So far, wait, okay, but that was just that wasn't before you were actually in prison because you mentioned you were in prison with the Menendez brothers, which yeah, is pretty is insane. The county jail. Okay, so before that, <clears throat> yeah, nineteen ninety two or three, in a in the Sacramento County Jail, well, you know when you when you got a federal case up that way, they send you to Sacramento County Jail to go to court. Mm. So Mac Dre was going to court from Sacramento County for his uh, alleged participation in bank robberies or whatever allegedly occurred in his life experience. So Mac Dre's in the tank and you got every day on segregate tanks. Mm-hmm. So you just sink or swim. You going you going up in there and whoever in there in there. Crazy, good luck. crazy environment. Like you're walking in there and it's just insane. And you just gotta always be ready to go. And right. that's one of my problems. You know, I was always had to be ready to go. You were more ready to go than anybody else. Uh, <laughs> there I was think competition. I, I might have had a little bit more motivation than everybody else that wasn't famous for sure. Mm. But I come from a place where they get they get busy where I come from. Right. So I ain't gonna say that I was you know I ain't never I ain't never met the hardest gangster yet. But and you I met a lot of them. You went in there with the attitude of I know motherfuckers are gonna try to press me, so I'm gonna be extra aggressive in case anybody has has an issue. I didn't even think about it that far. I just thought it's crib. <laughs> That's what I thought. This you crib. come back to I'm that. I'm coming yeah. in this tank. I mean, period. But that's interesting that you sort of keep summarizing your thoughts as a young man as is crib because it's like really like if you have that as your co is like I'm gonna stand on my shit. I'm not gonna let anybody disrespect me. Then that's all you need, right? Yeah, it wouldn't. I didn't even think about no disrespect because it's crib. Right. That's how that. That's how it stopped right there for me. That's where it was. I'm coming in this tank. Cause it's crib. Mm-hmm. I don't give a fuck who in here. That's how I really felt. I felt that way. For years and years and years, it's an inappropriate psychological disposition. But yeah. that was my that was my perspective for sure. So I walk in this tank, and Mac Dre, there's a big ass afro in the corner. He lifts his head up. It's Mac Dre. We had a, a connection as the first two Northern California Bay Area artists right. who were being reported about by hip hop media. Yeah, you know we had penetrated the culture as a result of our music and as a result of our cases. Uh-huh. So Mac Dre and I were being written about, this is before they were, if you wasn't too short or Spice One, there was nobody talking about you unless you was MC Hammer. Right. Up that way. That's the truth. This Very is before time, yeah. E-40 popped. I was bumping the click already. E-40 been putting in work, mm-hmm. but he hadn't been, they weren't reporting about that yet. They was reporting about me and Mac Dre and then everybody above us. So, Every time they wrote about me, they wrote about Dre. And every time they wrote about Dre, they wrote about me, a writer named Billy Jam. He always connected me and Mac Dre. So my first big story was attached to Dre, and Dre's first big story was attached to me. So when I when we when we met each other, it was coming from a place of like, you know, every time I see me and really my greatest achievement as an artist, mm-hmm. I see you too. We've shared that. And so Mac Dre gave me the game about recording over the phone. He told me how he made his record and told me, you know, this is how you could do it because that answer machine, I told him we did it on an answer machine. He was like, nah. He gave me a whole other way to do it. Really? Yeah, back Anything then. in particular? Well, there wasn't no cell phones back then. So, you know, Dre told me to take the phone apart, right, and solder the mic cables to it, <laughs> to the transmitter, That's to the serious. receiver, and plug that in the mix board as the microphone. So now I call the phone and it goes straight in the board and then call another phone and they, they do the same, solder it and play the beat through that. 
Wow. So I got to listen to the beat on this one and spit the rhyme in that one. Dre gave me the game about taking stuff apart, but John Botch at Inharmonic Studios in Sacramento kind of tweaked out on it and took it to another level and came to those conclusions. But that that the impetus for that for me was Mac Dre. He taught me that. And then I, we put that on steroids and took it to another level. And that's how I made that Exorcist album. And so, you know. The idea of Mac Dre being familiar with how to use a soldering kit is kind of just fascinating to me. That, that, like, that there was a technical side to this as well. It's a lot of reasons why you would need to know how to use one of them things in the streets. That's true, I guess. <laughs> it's factual. <laughs> that's fucking crazy. You got to modify. You might not have to know how to modify something. Yeah, man. Where we come from, straight up. Hey, what was it like when Pac died while you were locked up? Interestingly enough, when Pac died, I was in a cell with, with Sebo. We were cellies at Tracy. Uh, and, you know, Bo had just done All Eyes on Me with Tupac. He oh, had trade war stories. We ain't hard to find. He had a couple songs on there with Tupac. Yeah. And so it was, you know, he was really focused. Pac was about to do the Machiavelli Records thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and Bo was a big part of Pac's plans. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that nobody really talk about that, mm. like what Pac's plans were. Right. You know, we know what Biggie did, with who he put his crew on before he passed. And how Jay-Z came to be the guy putting people on, and along with others. Pac was doing the same thing. We never got to see that part of Pac's never, career. Right. What happens? You got this dude selling 10 million records at a time, you 5 mm -hmm. million records. And he got E-40 a phone call away, too short a phone call away. Forte a phone call away. He got Sebo. This is somebody who literally could have signed any and everybody from the West Coast, have one of the most dominated, dominating companies in yeah. hip-hop history. And that's what Pac was doing. And his relationship with Kidada and Quincy Jones, to think that that education wasn't available to Tupac, as smart as he was, would be, it would be unreasonable to think he wasn't conscious of that. Right. And so Bo was real focused on signing with Machiavelli Records and elevating what he was doing. So we had a female CEO. This is how powerful Pac's death was and who he was as a person. A female CEO came, got our door open, and stood there and cried and told us that Tupac had passed. So we we found out he got shot. A CEO told us he got shot, and a CEO came, stood at the door and cried and told us that he had died. And that was how we found out. And so, uh, you know, that hit Bo harder than that hit me. Like this rare moment where you and the guards are on the same level feeling the same pain? Well, I mean, maybe not the same pain, but feeling the same sadness about losing somebody so important? Uh, psychologically, that ain't, you know, yeah. it's a female. She might, the female yeah. guards was, it's me and Sebo in a cell together. Mm. They was on our door all the time. They was getting yelled at by their supervisors for being on our door. Right. Like, it's me and Sebo in a cell in a prison in Northern California. How the fuck do you guys get in the same cell? Crip. <laughs> That's what it was. Crip. That's fire. Garden block. You, you know, we housed with your affiliation. I was housed with my from my neighborhood. I don't think I had a celly that wasn't from my neighborhood. Right. From, until I got with whiskey, you know, at Folsom. But so she was she wasn't no guard standing there. That was a woman experiencing pain at losing the dude that wrote Dear Mama and, mm. and keep your head up. And I guess, you know, that she was she was re, re, 
reacting to her trauma from losing somebody that was communicating something to her that she was attached to and knowing that we had a connection to that, that both specifically had a connection to that. So I stood there and consoled my homeboy in that moment where, you know, he got to think about his whole life. That changed his whole life. Every decision he had to make after that was right. altered by the death of Pac, you know, and Pac publicly had proclaimed Masibo was one of his favorite rappers. And right. being from Gordon Block and from Sacramento, we was real proud of that. We were very proud to have that and, and hopeful. For real. So that's why I gave him those songs, Deadly Game. I gave Sibo Macaframe a lemon. He just didn't use it. I like gave him my lyric book. Really? Like you, you do. It's gonna be you. Somebody got to do it for the set. When you was there anything else that was that big of news in your entire sentence? Like the Tupac thing was that like the most significant thing that happened in terms of like the prison reacting to anything over that whole period of time? Like nine eleven was nine eleven on that scale? Nine eleven. Kind of harder to comprehend. 9-11 was more impactful for me as an individual. Right. Because 9-11 taught me something that I hadn't known up until then. I suspected, I, I was conscious that my life circumstances were different. Sanyika by then had already been programming me for about three years. Mm. By the time 9-11 happened, I remember I was uh, asleep. I'm in the cell and... It was too quiet. It was so quiet, it woke me up. And so I opened my eyes and I just started listening. And then I heard this roar, a cheer, like your favorite team won the Super Bowl. It went crazy, the building went crazy. And I turned the TV on and I, the first tower had fell. And like, a, actually a plane, a, the building was burning and I saw the other plane hit the other building, and that was how I understood what I was watching. Because everybody was like, we don't know you know, what was going on, or was it an accident? But the first building had got hit, but I didn't understand what was happening until I saw that plane smack that other building. Yeah. People start jumping off the building. Like, like I was watching that, people jump off the building. In my cell watching that, and the tear was cheering. They cheered for that. Why were they cheering? Just the destruction of society you know nobody knew what that they was like know, is it yeah. is america is it world war three yeah is it death to america i mean these are a lot of guys who feel like they've been fucked over by the prison system yeah. I mean, the government so it's the government kinda, yeah so it was you know it was like it was fuck america it was fuck the government it was fuck california that's how they felt Peace, mm. pete wilson and all the rest of them up to that point gray davis they fuck them and I think that's where that was coming from for them. But for me, as an artist, I think maybe seeing those people jump off that building, man, that was traumatic for me because I understood it. You're going to jump or you're going to burn. Yeah. That means the choices. You're going to jump or you're going to burn. Watching somebody make that choice is just... Right. I mean, there the wasn't fuck? no walking through the, the fire. There wasn't no getting down the stairs to smoking it, all of that. To understand the horror... Man, that fucked me up watching that happen, mm. and it, and I judged my environment for cheering for it. Really, I did. It made me feel different yeah. than my community right then. In that moment, I felt like like I can't co-sign that. A lot of people don't talk about 
the way that there were like so many people did not know how to feel in that moment so many people were used to sort of shitting on america and then that happens and i mean there were there were a lot of sort of weird responses within hip-hop when i look back on it in terms of you know weird conspiracy theories or weird people like saying like oh we the taliban i remember dipset were on that for a while and like people got on heavy because it was like yo that's distasteful blah 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 you know it's like yeah it was was very hard for people to make sense of something that devastating at that time you know what it is people that i read in my psychology courses the unequivocal truth is hurt people hurt people and hurt people want people to be hurt Mm. and so african-americans are hurt people in this country and so and, and they've been hurt by this country specifically. They perceive the country to be, and that's whether it is can be effectively communicated or not. That's something, that's a belief. Mm. That's an inherent belief that go all the way back to before 1865, pre-Abraham Lincoln, 13th Amendment, Emancipation Proclamation, all that. Before all that, people felt like America had done them harm. And a lot of the things that they were experiencing in their lives came as a result of America's decision and what America chose to impose on people, Jim Crow, all these things. So, and then the killing of the Panthers and the Philadelphia, you know, all that. People don't know how to say, I feel fucked over by this country. Mm. I feel like I have been inappropriately treated by this country. I'm disadvantaged and I haven't had a fair shot at life and I would like to have that shot. Mm. It's that simple. But what it comes out is this the Taliban. Mm. Yep. Fuck you know, yeah, That's fuck how that. it comes out. But <laughs> yeah. that's really what it's being communicated is I do not feel connected to right. this place. I don't I don't feel appreciated by this place, respected by this place. I feel attacked by this place, but this is my home. Yeah. There's a utter confusion involved in that. So I th- I I having been an ignorant, extremely ignorant person, I understand I'm empathetic toward other forms of ignorance when I experience them. Mm. I just get it. I get it. I can't agree with it, but I get it, though. I feel you. When, uh, it, when, when you first got locked up, were you even thinking about getting out, or did it seem so far off that there was no, it wasn't even a thought? When did it start to materialize in your head, like, okay, I have a future? Woo. Pete Wilson, you know, 1% of lifers were being paroled. 1%. Mm. 1%. And you were facing life at first. I faced life to the day I left. I was sentenced to 31 to life. Oof. And so I did. I had to do 85% of the 31 to be eligible for parole. So I became eligible for parole in my 24th year of actual incarceration. Wow. That was 2016 on uh, March 19th. 24th year of actual incarceration by the law. So I had a life sentence for sure. I still have a life sentence by the way. You know what I mean? You've been paroled, but it's still hanging over your head? Yeah, I'm one couple of good things away, you know. I got to be real cautious. Mm. You know, I do something stupid. I got a life sentence. I don't get a parole violation. I get a life sentence in place back in prison. I got to go back to board, and they have to do a rescission hearing to determine what occurred and why were you in this circumstance. And then if they decide it wasn't on me, it's, and then I get to go home again. So, so gotta, you you move careful? You're moving smart? I'm assuming. I'm moving very smart. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, I wouldn't call it careful though, but it's it's certainly intelligent. I mean, it's just too much at risk for you to just end up in some bullshit situation, right? There's a significant portion of my psychology that believes it's more acceptable to return to prison than to die. 
and not be able to provide for my family. So it's gonna be it's gonna be some respect received. That's how I feel about that. But I also feel that that's gonna be that's an ultimate choice. Mm. You know, it's people who feel like just drop a bomb on Iran. Why are we even talking about it? Right. But that's an irresponsible decision. But it's also something we're capable of doing as a country. Right. And so I feel the same way as a, as, a, as a toward a op a rival or anybody with a problem. I feel like like I. Like it's just that easy to crack the football open and push a button, but that's not uh, that's not reasonable you, in an unreasonable situation. Do you go out of your way to like keep yourself in situations where it's unlikely that something could happen that would be detrimental to your future? Absolutely, but you know you're on the ground. You gotta do a show. You gotta do a show. Mm-hmm. You gotta you gotta pull up somewhere. You gotta pull up. So mm-hmm. I'm all about doing that appropriately. I think it's important to convey to people that you do business with that you are a responsible person. Yes. Like you want to be, you want people to feel like they could do business with you and they could count on you. Like Brian Shafton giving me the deal at BMG and mm. the freedom to, you know, do whatever I want. If I get a better situation offered to me, go do it then. Like he, because he believes in me as a human being, mm. right? Before I had life and he still was in touch with me. He still was like, man, I believe in you. When you come home, it's going down. Mm-hmm. So I owe him something. I'm going to respect that. I'm going to honor that for my family first and foremost. I owe my family something for the way they waited for me and represented for me. So I'm going to be mindful of how I conduct myself. And certainly my greatest desire is to convey motivation, inspiration, and positivity, mm-hmm. encourage people. But you know that that's understood that that comes from a place, I'm, you know, I'm Darth Vader and which one is it? Empire Strikes Back? Return I don't know. I ain't seen them shits, to be I'm honest. Di- I'm Darth Vader after he decided to help his kids. Mm. How, <laughs> how do you stay on top of the culture while you're locked up for that long? Because it seems like you, you haven't really missed too much in terms of staying aware of what was going on and shit. Like, how much are you even able or interested in paying attention to what's going on on the outside when you're in your own world out here? Man, uh, most of it, you know, magazines subscriptions newspaper i was big on usa today reading all the time you know mm-hmm. read the sacramento bc was signing in the la times i stayed abreast with the news you know but you, you know, there's it's prison man if you got a couple bucks you'd be amazed what you could purchase right you know i got i think i got a write-up one time for having an entire studio in myself <laughs> and it, it's funny because what they wrote me up for was so small because they did, you just don't want to deal with how did that happen. <laughs> the answers to how that happened, they don't even want to know. They don't want to know. Because they're going to implicate fucking 10 guards or some shit, they right? They don't want to know. So they acted like it's in the write-up, but they didn't charge me for it. They just was like made up a reason why I had it. Right. The arts and corrections program and then took it and donated it to the arts and corrections program, put it in the chapel. Right. But it's like, you know, <laughs> so you mean cell phones, whatever, allegedly you, appear. You, you were able to stay in touch pretty well? Potentially. Right. Yeah, I was doing well. But that's, that's got to be a choice, <laughs> though, because it's like on one hand, like you could live more comfortably by being able to stay in touch better with your loved ones or shit like that. But then you also got to feel like you're taking a risk because if you get caught with that shit, you could get extra time, right? An entire studio in my cell. <laughs> and they wrote that up and did not charge me for it because they did not want to know how I got it. When did you start to become 
like you, it feels like when I'm reading and hearing you talk about this, that at some point you really started to learn how to work with the prison and stuff because you started a fucking podcast program. That's not regular shit. How did you like yeah. slowly start to work your way into the good graces and be able to make moves within the system? You know where it started with the first stage for me was the doctors. I was in the hole when they, they made this law as a result of uh, hunger strikes that happened at Pelican Bay and Corcoran and Tehachapi where people started protesting the conditions of the shoe and what they call Z units. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you, I'm in a cell with a sliver for a window that faces a white wall. So all I could see when I look out that, that window is a white wall on both sides. And I got another sliver the same size in the roof, and I could get a bar of the sun for about 15, 10 minutes every day. But other than that, you in there, I was in there, 24, 24, uh, probably 17, because you come out for exercise. You get two hours of recreation. So 10 hours of recreation a week and 24-hour lockdown. Otherwise, however, they space that out. So you might get two up, one out, two up, one out, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that had been determined to be stressful on the human psychology. So... The doctors started having to come around and check and see if people doing all right, pass out puzzles and different kind of information, you know, if you wanted to read to learn something or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I had these doctors that kept giving me these, these papers about uh, psychology itself, metacognizance, different things in, in real life psychology. And I would learn it and ask questions about it when they came back, like, hey, so what's this concept? You know, how does this work? And again, when you got somebody who has dedicated their lives to education in front of somebody who is hungry to learn, they're going to give it to you. And so the doctors started really teaching me a lot, and they became advocates for me Mm. big time. The doctors started being some of the first ones like, hey, this is a really smart dude in the circles that they moved in. And then the counselors started saying, you know, I had this older black lady I ended up with that was a counselor of mine. And she just was like, you remind me of my nephew so much. You're so smart. It don't even make sense why you act the way you act. She just called me out on it. Really? Not even as a counselor. She just got at me like a mom, you know? That must have felt good, honestly, in that. Because you're kind of lacking that sort of emotion from people in real life while you're in there, right? Yeah, but you're suspicious of it too, you know? True. If you if you go to help a dog in a flood, the dog going to bite you because it's afraid. It don't know what you're doing. You hear, it hurt me, what? You know, it's until you get it in the boat and out the water and in a towel and then mm. the dog is good. Right. Human beings are much similar to that. That's true. They're going to bite you when you try to help them initially. And so I was a bit of a biter. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they tell me something like that. I'd be like, what you... You're going to send me to committee and do what? Transfer me, you know? I'm suspicious of everything. Where I'm going at all? What are we doing? Mm. Let's get to it. Fuck what you talking about. Right. You put me in a hole. You're keeping me here three more months, four months, six months, nine months. How long am I going to be here? Let's go. Right. And so I was. it was hard for that stuff to penetrate my brain until years later, it, you know, the seeds got planted. Somebody else watered it. I got a couple sprouts. Somebody else pruned it. And then somebody else gave me light. And then I was receptive. So what happened is I changed my life for the sake of my family and my own personal comfort so much that that became apparent to a casual observer. Anybody could see it. 
It wasn't, it just wasn't the same. Mm. And it wasn't just money, you know, I'm going to have more food. I'm going to have nicer stuff. That's just par for the course. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have the best of the best that you could possibly have because in comparison to life on the streets, it really ain't nothing. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Anybody with $10,000 is going to feel like a baller in prison. Mm. And so for me, I was doing very well and it was obvious frequent visits. My family, you know, I'm, I'm regularly, you know, being pulled out. And so I started trying to get into programs, uh, self-help groups and stuff like that. And I was in environments where they didn't have it. And I had an OG tell me, why don't you start one yourself? Why don't you start a group? Like, you, you just keep talking about they ain't got one, go start one. Mm-hmm. So I started getting the bylaws. How do you start an NA group on the yard? Right. You know, how do you start NA anywhere? They got rules for that. They sent them. I wrote them and they sent them. I wrote a proposal and sent it to the administration. We need a space to be able to meet so that we can have this particular thing because they're asking for it when we go to board. Right. Y'all denying us parole because we don't have access to courses that we have to have to be suitable for parole, and you literally don't have a program. Mm. But you're going to deny us parole for not going. Right. And, <laughs> and so, But then once people get into that environment, like – did the podcast shit really start developing from there? Like, it was, it was, was really, much later. It was, that was much later. Much later. Okay. Yeah, I start with that. Have a little success. They actually gave me my my program. They let me. All right, you can. You got this space. You got this many hours. Do what y'all do. If you fuck it up, you know that's on y'all. Right. And we came under scrutiny because it could have been we trying to get some dope. We gonna manipulate the staff, the free staff. We, you know, you know, we prisoners. We criminals. Right. right. So. It's always a plan, a plot, and a scheme. We did that successfully, instituted it, you know, voted the chairman and the co-chair in, got that up and running. I tried a music program. That didn't work there. They still were suspicious of me. But through the years, as I kept doing that, because I like the response I got from the population. It really wasn't no more about, you know, trying to convince the institution no more. It was like it felt good. Uh-huh. Like, I know I actually know how to do it. And people was like, hey, man, I got an idea for a program. They would bring it to me because they knew I knew how to write it. Right. I knew how to read the rules. I knew how to work it uh-huh. and word it. And so, you know, I ended up just having a bunch of people telling me, hey, you know, that's what I think we can do. What you think? I wrote it. We submitted it and they approved it. And we, we came with all of the support and documentation. Mm. You know, other institutions have this and this and this. They sent us their bylaws. This is how they did it. You know, is it, a, is it, is it acceptable? That's an amazing thing. Do you think that, like, the tide is going in a good direction in terms of, like, conditions and prisons getting better? Because I'm sure that you saw stuff later on in your sentence that you probably couldn't have imagined early on in your sentence. Oh, for sure. Even at the end of my sentence, I still, you know, it's still present. But... Honestly, in the state of California, when Jerry Brown got elected, there was a, from him being governor-elect to being governor, come that January, I think, 2009 or whatever, it was day and night that fast. Really? How the grievance system changed, how the, the requests for anything changed, how the accountability that he placed on the staff. If somebody is... Uh, trying to do whatever, 
they had to have a, a way to document that that was requested. Uh -huh. So there wasn't going to be no more, oh, we didn't know that was happening, or medical requests, the way that you submit a request for physical assistance, you're not going to die in this cell. And they say they had no idea this person was sick, mm. even though they've been communicating that to you for 90 days. They let them die, and now you get to say, oh, we didn't know. We just, we just counting the body. Right. Been laying in there funky for four days because his cellie can't tell him, right? Right. Just the dead body in there. So we we saw stuff like that. All that stuff started getting better, honest to God, when Jerry Brown got elected. That's the truth. Wow. I watched it happen. You know, I went from Pete Wilson, Gray Davis, Arnold Schwarzenegger to Jerry Brown, and our experience changed drastically mm. when Jerry Brown was elected. And, and you know, it even culminated in my freedom is attached to that. I mean, we have different people within our society who coming from different places, too, because, I mean, you have people like Meek Mill and then even like Kim Kardashian kind of trying to create this public discourse about uh, prison reform and everything. Obviously, Meek is coming from a more authentic position, having recently done time. But is that something like when you get out of prison, is there, there's probably a part of you that just wants to be like, goodbye, I'm never fucking thinking about that part of my life again. Or is there a part of you that wants to keep going to try to do what you can to be a face for uh, some kind of change in terms of the, the way that you I spent think, the, all those years? I think Meek Mill is a good example of why that's not, it's not possible. So there's learned helplessness. You know, the, they did the study where the dog there's a wall and there's a dog, two dogs, and the floor shocks right. the dogs, right? And one of them decides to just lay down and learn to get accustomed to the shock, and the other one learns that if I jump this wall, that floor over here doesn't do that to you. And they're like, I'm going on the other side. I don't know what y'all going to do, but I'm jumping this wall because I'm not getting shocked no more. The way that parole is, you're either going to lay down and get shocked or you're going to jump the fence. And so... Jumping the fence is you got to participate in the discourse and make changes because this is your real life, mm. especially if you intend to be free. I intend to be free. I intend to be free, healthy, and alive. So in order to do that, I got to jump the wall and say, these are the ways that I can be successful better. Mm. And certainly these things are going to cause other people to fail. And if y'all don't, if that's not what you want, then we need to make these particular changes. And so... I think Meek Mill was on what, probation damn near a decade. Doing a wheelie. For, for doing a wheelie. And like, okay, how is he possibly able to move on with his life if he's going to be on probation for 10 years? That's probation. Especially in his position, moving around, touring, all that. It ain't right. like he's just a guy going to work every day. Yeah, I've done 40, 50 shows since I came home. Mm. And all that requires paperwork, documentation ahead of time. I'm going to this place. Here's the contact. This is the promoter. Here's the contract. Like all of this stuff to be able to pay for my house. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and this is my real job. So it requires participation. And I think Meek is a good example. If a person doesn't do that, it's going to be very difficult to tolerate. And it's going to create anger and resentment if you're not positively combating what you're experiencing because it's going to be a, it's going to feel real bad it's going to feel like god damn mm. i just did all this time and it ain't enough yet it still ain't enough mm. if i wasn't x-rated the way they sent me home would have sent me back to prison within 90 days if i was not me if you didn't have something to go home to. if i didn't if i couldn't afford a, to get a condominium in the town they paroled me to where i had no family members right if i couldn't afford that 
then I would have failed because now it's what? Trapped at a transitional house. What am I doing? Am I limited in my movements or my ability? If I was not me, I would have went back to prison probably by Christmas of 2018. So when you got out, you were still doing all right money-wise from all the music that you sold while you were locked up and shit? Were you smart with your money the whole time you were gone and everything? I got a, I got a very intelligent partner who knew how to make moves and make sure that we had the things we need, a hard worker. So, you know, being part of a team like that created a circumstance where there was certain kinds of securities owning, you mm -hmm. know, homes, things like that. So the music did a lot, especially, you know, come home, sign a contract and for a tour. I think I was home for two months and already had 30 cities, something like that lined up. That was a lot of money. So, you know, and then I invested, reinvested my money in myself, my merchandise, things like that. That's a lot of money. So I was able to do all right for myself, make sure that I could you know, I got my vehicles, transportation. My brothers came to my aid to make sure, hey, man, whatever you need, here you go. Right. You know what I mean? So I was fortunate and, you know, living in Oakland with no family, just driven there, chained up. They, you know, the day I got out of prison, they put chains on me, put me in a van, in a cage. And drove you where? To San Diego? drove me from San Diego to Oakland. Oh. Dropped me off at my PO's feet. And so you get out, and then they stick you on a bus in chains for eight hours. Yep. Because Brutal. I'm a, I'm a, so I'm a public interest, hard notoriety designation, validated gang member. That's my status. And it's funny because I, like, I noticed these other rappers. A lot of times, man, I don't want to say nothing because I, I like, I come from a real culture, mm -hmm. and it's a lot of things I never said. And as a result of that, you don't say a lie, uh, unrefuted, can become the truth. So I've had a lot of rappers say their two cent about prison and what their experience was in prison. There is no rapper, there is no rapper in the history of hip hop who had a life sentence, who did his life sentence and paroled from prison, who was validated a public interest case or high notoriety, not one of them. Mm. Meaning there wasn't one rapper who went to prison and even was considered a celebrity. They didn't even consider him a celebrity. Mm. And so you got some of these dudes that stand on that like, you know, I, I'm such and such. But it's like the prison didn't give a fuck that you existed at all. The administration, the state of California didn't give a fuck about your little raps and your pennies. Mm -hmm. Didn't care at all. I got validated as a public interest case, high notoriety case, in the same way that they did Scott Peterson and the way they did Charles Manson, and the way they did Tukey Williams, that's my designation. Literally, I have the same classification as Tukey Williams the day he died. Right now, to this day, my CDCR classification is identical to his. There is no rapper ever that had that, ever. Mm. Or that did 26 years, five months, and 26 days of a 31-to-life sentence. So I have no peer in hip-hop at all whatsoever for one of them to speak on what I did or didn't do or how my time was. So I got sent home chanked up like that because my status requires that I be moved that way on some Hannibal Lecter shit because of, you know, my childhood and influence and ability for ambush. Like I'm an ambush transport 
on right. the day I parole from prison. <laughs> parole. Like that's stupid as fuck. The dumbest motherfucker still wouldn't do that. That dumbest <laughs> motherfucker could have just waited and be like, I'm, I'm gonna be free. Kill some here. people when I get home. Yeah. Yeah, you ain't gotta right. do it right now. But whatever. So that's how I got transported, dropped off, chained up, shackles, manacles. Must have been the best feeling in the world, just sitting there knowing that this is gonna be a last time in chains, or at least for a long time. Man, I could still feel those chains to this day. Really. You know how they say amputees can still feel the leg, the arm? Mm. I can still feel them chains. Damn. I'm all right with that, though. I don't want them to go away. Mm. I don't want it to go away. I think that would be a uh, that would be a mistake. Definitely. But somebody, you know, relapse is a real thing. It's a slippery slope. Right. I wake up in the morning, it's easy for me to get angry about something and think it's crib. Do you, you think know that, how easy that is? Could you see yourself... Going down a bad route again, though? Absolutely not. No. Because I'm conscious of it. Not because I'm acting like it don't exist. Like, I don't have these issues. I got a lifestyle addiction. Mm. I come from the streets. I'm from a specific culture. And my, my natural instincts are all fucked up. Like, somebody coming home from the military from war with PTSD, mm-hmm. their instincts are fucked up. So by the time, like, I started training service dogs while I was in prison... And I trained one for a man named uh, Jim Horner, Sergeant Jim Horner. Mm-hmm. We trained a dog for him. He told us that when he came back from Afghanistan, he went to the mall and had a panic attack because a kid set a backpack down. And, you know, in Afghanistan, yeah. that's a bomb. Right. That's a bomb. But in the mall... Right. In the mall... Where in the nobody's California, on alert. <laughs> yeah. Probably not a bomb right. in the backpack. Could be nowadays. Right. Probably not a bomb in that backpack. But that's what he felt. Uh-huh. And he had such a bad experience that he contemplated suicide and all of that until, you know, the decision to get his dog actually saved his life is what he communicated to us. And so I can relate to that because I got backpacks too. Mm. They're just not backpacks. Right. It's things that can happen to me where... My brain says there's a bomb in that backpack and it's just a dude standing there and he ain't thinking nothing about nothing. But my brain says, fuck you, this crib, because it's damaged. Mm. So I have to have something between my brain, a thought and an action. I have to have something in the middle of that deliberately. Right. Has to be there. So I counter that with positive input, meditation. You know, I ain't afraid to bust a prayer. You know, I understand that I have to put something else in my brain so that my my first thing to draw upon is something decent. Right. And if we not can, I don't tell this story so I could be like, that's crap and I'm hardcore. I'm saying the people that I'm most likely to be helpful to think that. Definitely. So they need to know to put something between that thought and that action so that they can do better for themselves too. So that's what I'm hoping to be able to do now that I'm home. I feel like that's a responsibility, like saying you could tell me, you know, you have a responsibility to say something worthy of being heard. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm going to share how I was able to overcome some of these things and then how I have to address my present weaknesses that exist in my spirit as a result of what I went through. Like reading Mandela's works, you know, I'm inspired by all of that. So I'm trying to be helpful to the demographic I came from. Right. They always want us to change. We can't help the people 
that we came from. What, what kind of shit really gives you the most joy at this point, being a free man? Oh. Because like, I know, you, I, I can imagine what you're doing in a day, you know, definitely probably working on the music, promoting all that and stuff. But what, what really made, brings you the most happiness? Oh. The most happiness? Man, the most happiness I get is being around, you know, family, you know, mm. family. There's a couple of people that I get to see who make me really happy. Mm. You know what I mean? Beautiful little human beings that make me happy. Uh, my animals, you know. But it's family. Family is everything. That's that's my greatest joy. But separate from that, it's the studio. It's the studio. Ain't nothing for me like being in a mm. booth and with headphones on with a beat blasting in front of a microphone spitting bars. Right. I feel free. You know how dogs stick their head out the window <laughs> and let the tongue flap? Yeah. They have that smile on their face. That's me in a booth. That's how I feel. All them years, I just wanted to write rhymes, record rhymes, make songs. And now I get to go sit in the studio for 10 hours and just create and then listen to that song and be like, yeah. Like, yeah, that's my happy thing right there. Damn. It's a great joy for me. Has it been a challenge at all to connect with like the new generation of artists? Because we do know that a lot of young rappers are totally full of themselves. They're not trying to hear nothing. But you've got a perspective and like, you know, you're a legend in your own right, but sometimes these kids don't know about fucking they don't know about fifty cent, never mind X rated. They don't they got short ass memory spans and shit. So is it kinda interesting seeing who shows love and who's who's aware of your impact and everything versus the people that are too young to really know? Yeah, but uh, as a student in hip hop, like we gotta be, it's funny, the generation that's experiencing it always forgets about being the generation that it happened to. Mm. You know, I, I wrote Psychoactive when I was 17 years old. That was drastically different from what hip hop did then. Mm. People looked at me as the dude just rapping, bitch killer fucking with a psycho, mm. like the shit I was writing about with a mask on. If you wasn't a gang member, my music wasn't going to appeal to you. Mm -hmm. I wrote music for gang members. Bloods, Crips, Northerners, Southerners. My music appealed to gang members. Even white supremacists could relate. My shit was about smashing war, soldiers related to my music. Did my you shit. ever have white supremacists tell you they fuck with your music? Yeah. <laughs> I never heard that before. That's crazy. I'm the one I'm the one anomaly that was in the prison environment that people would risk their life to speak to me. Wow, really? Yeah, that's when I learned. This man want to say he fucked with my music, let him do it, because that's a big deal even speaking to me. They don't speak to black people. A lot of white right? supremacists, though, are the most lost-ass motherfuckers that they were probably listening to rap fucking two years ago, you know? Or six months ago or last night, you know? Like, they don't know what... Like, I think you're making a mistake when you hear about, like, white supremacists and you take them as these, like, serious-ass motherfuckers. There's got to be some percentage of them that are like that, but a lot of these dudes, if you actually, like, see them in interviews and shit, you're like, yo, that's the goofiest dude ever. That's what I'm gonna say. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna speak for my. I'm, that's my demographic too. For I'm sure. one of them. Because you were incarcerated for so long, yeah. In that environment, we formerly and currently incarcerated persons are my. That's my people. That's my gang now. Okay. And so what I could tell you is the same way that we've had as African Americans, uh, culture that was attacking us and pushing us in a certain direction. They got that happening to them too. Mm. They've been, see, 
the 13th Amendment is a very specific document when you read it, right? Uh, slavery is hereby abolished in these United States of America, except, except as punishment for those duly convicted of a crime, right? So they didn't abolish it. They modified it. They said, if you go to prison, you're a slave. And it, the majority of every prison population, body for body in a prison, is white. Per capita, based on the size of your, your presence in the population, we hear about blacks and Mexicans being overrepresented in that environment, and mm. that's true. But when you count the bodies, the, so the, white, yeah. there are more white people in prison than black people and Mexicans probably combined. Those dudes come to prison and they never had a problem with a black person or a Mexican in their life. But if they don't join this particular thing, they're going to die. Mm. They're going to die. You're going to join mm. one of them or you're going to die. So everybody may not even have believed in that. Mm. And it just became a survival mechanism, you know, if faced with the choices of not having the ability to survive or getting your ass took mm. or any of that, being a victim, then... Yeah, fuck all the black people then. That's every white guy's nightmare. Well, not every white guy, but a lot of white guys is like, you're going to just end up in prison and like... Right, overnight. What are you going to do to fucking survive when you can't like go be cool with the fucking Crips just because you fucking... You know what you would do? You would shave your eyebrows, you would shave your beard, you would shave your head, you put your boots on, tie them up, and you take your ass to that yard. <laughs> that's exactly what you would do. That's, a, that's do, the scary part. That's the idea you, that you might have to. Oh, don't no no. I listen, don't want to trust me. Listen to what I'm saying. You saying I have shave to, your eyebrows? They do that too. Are you gonna have to? That is what you are going to do. Ugh, trust God me. Damn it. That's exactly what you're gonna have to do. So don't go. That's why I'm not going. Yeah, that's why I was thinking, man. <laughs> don't go. It's not cool. But you know, I think that I, I as I got involved in organizations that had to do stuff for everybody, mm. I started understanding. You know, one of the big biggest lies, like. Uh, Martin Luther King said in his speech, I think in Montgomery, one of the biggest lies that America told white people was that they was better than somebody else because of their color, because poor white people, poor brown people, and poor black people were all just poor people. Mm. It's one of the biggest lies. I'm like, I ain't got shit to eat, but I ain't black. <laughs> like, that don't fill up your stomach. So anybody that believes that obviously has some damage, but... The 13th Amendment, this country has done a number on all people. And uh, the 13th Amendment didn't, it said, y'all want to fight over this issue? You can all be slaves. Mm. Go get in trouble and I'll put your ass in chains too. Yeah. That's what it really says. <laughs> I'm going to translate it. That's real. What, uh, so you got a bunch of new music videos you dropped since you've been out and everything. What, yeah. What's the plan in terms of all that? What, what's been going oh, on? Right now I'm working on a project. It's called Psychoanalysis. I'm going back to the beginning of my music, all my everything I ever wrote during my term that I feel like has substance to it and meat to it. We taking all of that and reproducing it, re-recording it, remixing, remastering them, and putting them out twelve song increments with uh, video diaries for each song, breaking the song down, where I was when I wrote it, why I wrote it, how I felt, along with the lyrics, a book, all that. So. That's a very ambitious project, psychoanalysis. We're working on that. I'm, you know, funding our own documentary. 
with uh, Visions. They're getting it to Netflix. Oh, really? Yeah, we studied the camera specs. I mean, I feel like the the X-rated story is built for Netflix and could be so much bigger and more well-known if they had that, if it had that light shine on it. Yeah, I agree. And what I've come to learn, and shout out to Nipsey, you know, for having preached about empowerment and the understanding that you got to do some of this stuff yourself. Mm. What I had to learn was, wasn't nobody going to do that for me. I had to learn that from September 14th of 2018 to this moment in this seat right now, that if I don't do it, the likelihood of it getting done is very low. Mm. And so... So, you know, me and my management, we all, you know, right now meeting with a firm. We got the shooters and and we got the bur- the bag. So we'll yeah. do it ourselves, edit it, you know, write the book myself. I don't need nobody to help me with that. But, you know, I got somebody that can check it out, make sure I did it right, hire an editor. And just, but the beauty of doing the work yourself is you put it out yourself and you get the bag yourself. And right. when they come knocking saying, we want this story, I got to pay myself. And so, you know, salute to to the legendary Nipsey Hussle. Salute, salute, big time. The legendary Nipsey Hussle for teaching self-empowerment and that, you know, people supposed to go out there and get their money and own their shit. I mean, you were only, f- you were free for a couple months before Nipsey passed, huh? Yeah, it wasn't very long at all. Yeah, probably seven, six or seven months. Something mm. like that. that one shook the city to the core. Yeah, it did. I was locked up with his homeboys, you know, to the day I left. Mm-hmm. Big Ron Ron, uh, you know, he's on my IG. I think like the second post I did ever is a picture of me and Big Ron Ron and MC Fausty mm-hmm. that made Radioactive inside the podcast studio together, you know, and they're doing what Nipsey was trying to do out here. Mm. And then, you know, so that's why when he passed, I pulled up, you know, with Big Ron Ron. Went to Ralph's for the meeting. I went to Crenshaw and Slauson. I went to the Marathon store. Mm. That's on my IG, too, just to show my respect, you know, especially for what his homies did for me, you know. Definitely. Yeah. So it's big respect for the legendary Nipsey Hussle. Facts. That um, part. What else, uh, in terms of what you're working on in your life, you just focused on the music and focused on bringing that to the people is 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 there anything else that we wouldn't guess that you have going on in your in your life i think most of mine could be guessed i'm like king of transparency right now music everything gonna be music i'm about to drop surprise music shoot videos to because the psychoanalysis project is an ambitious thing and it's a labor of love Mm. and you can't do it wrong some of these songs it'd be like tupac changing hail mary right if you know i was to tweak macroframalama incorrectly that could backfire on me Mm. you know what i mean you can't mess with that people have 20 years invested in that song or somebody who discovered it a year ago right i gotta make sure that i do that correctly so i've been obsessing over making sure that it sounds exactly like the original on steroids it's stronger but it's not different Right. That's what I'm trying to accomplish. So in the meantime, I'm just gonna drop random ten song projects for the people at a extreme pace, you know, so that I can just keep up with the youngest. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing, man. It's almost uh I don't know if you ever get this, but it's like almost surreal to be sitting there having a conversation with you in real life after just you know, you were always like my whole time knowing about you, you were like this phantom 
do that we were never like, people used to always say now that i think about it, like yeah he's life like you're never gonna see him yeah i'm bigfoot really right? yeah i'm bigfoot with a shower and a shave <laughs> i tell people that all the time it's like x-rated i'll do i'll be doing a meet and greet and they say that over and over like x-rated but that must be a weird thing for you to have people still be surprised that you're out because from your perspective it's kind of like well motherfucker it was in the news i posted about it it got interviews online it got new music nah. videos out like why are motherfuckers not paying attention right nah i think there's a degree of arrogance if i was to go there mm. what i believe this this is my perspective i believe it's a significant blessing that that whatever percentage of people remember me at all mm. or that are conscious or that cared that i came home at all that's a blessing because I did 26 years, five months, and 26 days and came home with a million views on my first video and, and sold out shows with people who had rocked with my music. Some of them are from the 1991 to 2000. Some of them are 2000 to 2010. Some of them are 2010 to 2019. Right. I got four generations of fans rocking to my music. And nobody ever came home from prison to that. Yeah. Nobody that did time like time. I, I There's just me and my son in New York that did this much time come home and still be considered a part of the culture at all. I mean, we talk about rappers who get three, four years like, damn, I wonder if they're going to be all right when they get out. Right. You know, because shit does move so fast that it ain't a sure thing. And their music unfortunately, has no substance. Mm. And so when your music has no substance, it can't connect, and now you just Jay Kwan. You just, you know, <laughs> everybody in the club get tipsy and you're gone. Yeah. And and that's what'll happen. And that's why I encourage people to actually put some substance in their music. But that go back to our point about being a generation. I remember N.W.A. came out. Everybody has something to say about the ignorance in their music. Uh -huh. Two Live Crew was so ignorant. Uh, you know, the, the East Coast was used to a different kind of hip-hop, and the East Coast controlled the media at the time with no podcasts. But no, if you wanted to get on TV or be written about, you had to get that through the, through New York. Right. And, you know, L.A. had to play catch-up, like, wait, in response to being treated like a stepchild by New York. And so we forget that even Run DMC was considered by New York as an aberration because they was used to the Grandmaster Five, you know, the... The Furious Five. They was used to Sugar Hill Gang. They was used to. They was used to that. There's, There's not a lot of people left in rap who could comment on that time period and like remember those sort of stylistic changes and shit. You know, it's like a lot of that stuff sort of is the kind of stuff that's written about in books. But there's not a lot of people who could really have that conversation. It's these insane. Days, you know, it's insane because it's a sport. Hip hop is a sport, but we don't. We ain't created a Hall of Fame for ourselves yet. We don't hand out gold jackets for our icons. Mm -hmm. We tear them down when they die, right? Instead of saying, you know, we lost one of our own. Mm. You get if the makeup man dies from the Wizard of Oz, the Academy is gonna honor the dude. Mm. The dude that did Dorothy's makeup got honored, <laughs> right? Right. Nevertheless, the man that shot the movie, the the makeup man, and hip hop. In hip-hop, you can't even get that from your own. Mm. You get blessed if Rolling Stone mess with you. We got to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, mm. right? If you N.W.A., if you Public Enemy, if you the Beastie Boys. Like, we're not understanding. That's our culture. And we got to get acceptance outside of it because we're so busy tearing each other down. 
and having built institutions within our sport to honor ourselves like all the other sports do. Mm. Like all of them, the NBA, NFL, and we all obsess over those ones and argue all day over who to go in NBA sports and what stats they got and what the, why their stats matter. Mm-hmm. But we don't have no system to honor that in our own, and therefore it's a speculative thing, a subjective thing, and it, it causes people to be reckless. And that commentary sometimes, I think we should honor our own. We should give a fuck. And I say our own, all of them, and the M&Ms and from all of them, Kendrick Lamar, all of them, we shouldn't have to lose one to start throwing flowers around. Yeah. It should be understood that this is, we witnessing greatness Right now, the, the kid from the Kansas City Chiefs is so phenomenal. You know, the Lamar Jackson is amazing, mm-hmm. right? All of that. Right now, they give it to him. He ain't, nobody say he had to win a Super Bowl. Right. He ain't won an MVP, nothing. Right now, that was a great game. And in hip-hop, there's so many ways to matter. Like, you don't have to have a number one hit. X-Rated ain't never had a number one hit, and X-Rated will die a legend. Facts. You know, it's like there's a lot I'm of a different. Live, I'm a live a legend too. Facts, but like that—that's the kind of thing where it's like there's a lot of different standards by which you could judge a rapper. And yeah, a lot of rappers who had number one hits are legends, but a lot of rappers who never even hit any kind of chart are legends to us because yeah. we can appreciate a motherfucker who was dope in his area, never broke through, whatever. That don't matter. That's that's that's. I'm gonna ask you a serious ass question. Yeah, you ready for it? Yeah, is Vanilla Ice doper than Nipsey Hussle? No. Vanilla Ice has greater numbers than Nipsey Hussle. Fair enough, but I mean. Which means that the numbers is bullshit. Mm. That's I mean, what it means. The numbers are bullshit. At the end of the day, make, <laughs> making a massive hit doesn't uh, guarantee you legend status. Although I guess you could kind of give it to Vanilla Ice that in Vanilla a way he Ice is, is a, legend. a legend. Yeah, Vanilla Ice is a legend, but it's not because of the numbers. Yeah. It's because no matter how much a motherfucker want to act like they hate the dude, mm. that goddamn song is slapping, bro. Mm. Ice Ice Baby slapping. Turn right. it on. That shit slap. And people going to know the words that hate the song because that shit slaps, bro. It's- Ironically, <laughs> on Vanilla set, Ice, that is, song slaps. He's an urban legend, There's which is kind of funny. He's like an urban legend, even though I'm not sure I want to give Vanilla Ice urban after the conversation I, we were having previously. He certainly can't have an urban legend. Yeah. <laughs> Vanilla Ice has a certain degree of legendary status in yeah. hip hop because we talk, we have to talk about him mm-hmm. in certain regards. He's a part. The Suge Knight story is a legendary story. Mm. He got legendary status, but I can tell you that you know, statistically speaking, as a person who likes to watch the sport, he ain't had one game in his life better than a game right. that Nipsey played, or better than a game that Tupac played as right. a rapper. The sport, and he never the, outshined in the sport. The thing I'll say is that it's, it's always hard to be the first one through the wall. And Vanilla Ice, you know, he, he, had, wasn't he, first. he, he did it for all the other white boys. No, MC Surge is dope. <laughs> okay. Back in third base was the shit. You know, we, I'm, a, I'm a historian. Right. Third base was the shit. The Paul Revere is still the shit. The Beastie Boys was the shit. Okay, so, but the know. reason why it's easy for white rappers now is because of Vanilla Ice and because of Eminem, because all these dudes who took all the shit for white people in general yeah. so that g Easy can just be g Easy yeah. and motherfuckers don't say, oh, g Easy ain't black enough. Like, people are past that, you know? Yeah, and it's yeah. like, Eminem had it a little rough, but Vanilla Ice had, I mean, it's kind of different because Eminem had a lot more reasons for people to respect him versus Vanilla Ice. So yeah, he, he yeah. had kind of earned his respect a lot more, but, you know, everybody got to kind of break through the wall to to get to where they're going, I guess. 
in yeah. order for hip hop to be truly open it's to whatever extent that's a good the thing. The Beastie Boys got no hate. Right. Mac Miller got no hate. The certain certain white dudes managed Star to sort Bass of skate got through. No hate. So it, it, it's a trip that dope rappers. Mm. Eminem didn't really get hate. Eminem manufactured hate. Mm. That Eminem started the argument about being Elvis. Eminem started the argument about y'all hate because I'm white. Eminem did that. It was very brilliant marketing. Particularly early in his career, black people didn't seem all that mad at Eminem. White people, conservative people were mad at Eminem. Yeah, yeah white people were more. They were Dr. Dre's co-sign. Black people to me. It was over with. My perspective was that black people were just like, how the fuck are you talking shit about your mom? You're not allowed yeah. to do that. That more than stuff. anything stood out as like, wow, that is some white boy shit right there. When you start saying why people aren't so fast to get somebody greatest rapper of all time status, it's going to be the, the mom thing and it's going to be the, the gay stuff because mm. it's intolerable for some people to bump that in their car mm. out loud. Even if you thought it was a dope song, I want to be at a light slapping my uncle rape me and whatever, and I'm at a light with my window rolled down and, and the dude pull up next to me slapping something or whatever. Don't nobody want to do that. Mm. And so it harmed him the same way Ludacris being a comedian harmed his argument for one of the better rap. Dude was one of the dopest rappers on the face of the earth, period, mm. his entire career. And he can't get an honorable mention whatsoever because of the comedy. So it's rules to this and how you get, you know, accepted. And, and argued for your greatness. And I think that's what harmed Eminem, you know. But mm. at this point, I think people understand that dude's one of the dopest rappers to ever do it. I don't think it's room for an argument no more. If there ever was, like, it's just stupid at this point. Like, come on, man. Yeah, I feel you. Um, last question. How do you want X-Rated to be remembered? I want X-Rated to be remembered as somebody who had adversity, who was ignorant, who educated himself, who persevered, who overcame and inspired and motivated other people to do the same. That's what I want to be remembered for right there. Well said. Yeah. Hey, it was an honor getting to talk to you for this long, man, honestly. I appreciate you having me, man. This is, uh, you know, this is on my list of things that I wanted to do when I got home. Appreciate that. So I appreciate you having me. California Surreal Dreaming. Go grab it. California Dreaming album available everywhere on all platforms. It's dope. Go get that album and slap. You're going to be shocked how dope it is on my mama. I'm better than your favorite rapper. Just like that. Yeah. Shout out to anybody who made it this deep with us because this was, this, was this was a wild ride. Appreciate it. <laughs> All the time, man. Thank you. X-rated. No jumper. Coolest podcast in the world. Check us out on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes. Like, comment, and subscribe. Nojumper.com if you want to support. Appreciate y'all. Do that.